I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai and the UAE. Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, and Olaf Scholz are among world leaders in U.S. atomic bomb site Hiroshima, Japan, this weekend, kicking off the 49th annual summit of the G7, an exclusive club made up of only NATO members and its allies and proxies, while the nations in the proxy war with Russia chew over how they'll continue funding their military aggression via Zelensky. Countless more are dying as the war in Ukraine continues to escalate with British missiles being sent to kill. Well, joining me now from Palermo in Sicily, Italy, is Professor Charles Kupchan, Senior Fellow and Director of European Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Senior Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton and Obama administrations. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Professor, for coming back on the show. I just better start by this uh, Hiroshima summit of all the places. Just as... Uh, Russia withdraws from the uh, Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty. It's already placing tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus uh, ahead of a St. Petersburg forum about uh, where the rest of the world is coming to. The G7 meet in Hiroshima to talk about Chinese coercion and the best way to attack Russia? Well, I, I would say that this is a, a meeting with a lot of resonance, to put it mildly. Uh, you know, this is the, the, the site of the the, uh, the atomic weapon that helped bring World War II to an end. Well, we now right know. Now. Sorry sorry to interrupt, but I think there's been so much history about the fact that Japan actually had already surrendered. I don't want to go too back into history before Nagasaki and Hiroshima were blown up to show and prove the new superpower of the 20th century, the United States. Well, uh, it's probably not worth our time to litigate uh, how World War II came to an end. But the fact that the G7 is gathering there at the same time that we're in the middle of a hot war in Europe, the biggest land war since World War II, in which one side, the Russians, have threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is a dangerous moment, arguably the most dangerous moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis. One could say even more dangerous because the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred during the Cold War. There was peace. Right now, there are bombs and missiles flying in Ukraine. Uh, so hopefully the, uh, the G7 summit will uh, get, get more assistance, maintain uh, unity among the major democracies. Uh, at least at this, at this stage, it doesn't look like the war in Ukraine is going to end anytime soon. Well, if it's so dangerous, why are you advocating what Rishi Sunak has done this week, said that F-16 training... I don't know whether you advocate F-16 uh, warplanes to Zelensky. You're advocating more artillery, more ammunition for Zelensky. If it's so dangerous, why do you want that? Uh, because I think that the Ukrainians are determined to launch an offensive. They have a moral and legal right to take back as much of their territory as they can. And I think we should give them the best chance possible to advance into eastern Ukraine in the coming months. That having been said, I do think that we should marry the provision of more weapons to Ukraine, the provision of economic assistance to Ukraine, to a plan B, because I'm skeptical that Ukraine is going to win on the battlefield, and by win, I mean reclaim all of its territory. And as a consequence, when we get to the end of this fighting season, late in 2023, I think we're gonna have to have a conversation within NATO with the Ukrainians and ultimately with the Russians about how and when and where we can try to wrestle this conflict 
to the ground because it is a war that is dangerous. It is having global blowback effects in the form of inflation, food shortages, energy shortages. It's polarizing the international system with the democracies on one side, Ukraine uh, in the middle, Russia and China on the other. You and say democracies. Russia and China obviously consider themselves democratic, as do global South countries. Ukraine itself uh, jailed and persecuted the leading opposition uh, figure, the Opposition uh, for Life Party in Kiev. Obviously, the free media has been banned right across the European Union with uh, all, uh, all dissonant voices, all voices against uh, uh, the NATO uh, view of the world uh, being banned in Europe. Uh, I, I think in the United States, you only had one uh, television presenter, Tucker Carlson, who presented an oppositional uh, view to uh, Biden's policy. He's been fired from Fox News. How democratic is this West that you talk of, given that there is, as the Washington Post say, democracy dies in darkness? There is a darkness in the United States and Western Europe about what's happening. Well, we are clearly at a historical inflection point. Right, you go back to the French and American revolutions in the 1700s and track forward and you see history generally tilting in the progressive direction. The world became more and more free and now it has tilted back in the other direction. Autocracies are becoming more autocratic and I don't know anybody who would really call Russia or China a democracy, except maybe their own leaders. Wait, wait, wait. Russia's not a democracy. You know, it's uh, international observers saw what was happening in Russia when Putin was elected. If anything, uh, Putin was forced by opposition parties to go into Donbass to protect the civilians of Donetsk and Luhansk from uh, NATO-armed uh, Ukraine forces. Uh, and Putin didn't want to do it. As we know, Putin wanted to join NATO at one point. Uh, I would uh, beg to differ with just about everything that you just said. Uh, Russia right now is clamping down on every aspect of civil society. Russia has taken over the free media. You can't go out and speak your mind about this conflict. You have to call it a special military operation. They're throwing people in jail. People are leaving, fleeing the country in droves. Come on, Afshin. Uh, uh, you know, you, well, no to which, way, to no which I would say the BBC and CNN and all these uh, Western, uh, the Russians would say, propaganda outlets, uh, they have journalists in Russia. They're free to be in Russia reporting, whereas Russian reporters cannot report from even the United States, and let alone from Western Europe. And uh, you know about Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Tchaikovsky being banned. And what do you mean about the arc of history being progressive? You also know... The century, since, I mean, since 1945. I don't need to give you the list. You were on the Council of Foreign Relations of Iran, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Syria, Egypt, Indonesia, British Guiana, Iraq, North Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Ecuador. The, the countries all over the world were destroyed by U.S. policy. No, uh, journalists are not free in Russia. In fact, there's a journalist from the Wall Street Journal who is now stuck in a prison there and other... Uh, reporters aren't going to Russia because they are afraid that go that they are going to be arrested. You know he's considered a spy. States you know he's considered a spy in Russia. And Julian Assange, according to the UN Special Rapporteur on torture, is being tortured in Britain 
by British newspapers and British security forces as Joe Biden seeks to uh, extradite him for 175 years in jail in a secret court in Virginia? Uh, Afshin, I, you know, I'm not sure you want to go on the record singing the praises of Vladimir. I'm not. Right? He's, he's just, I'm just launched exposing one your of double the standard. strategic blunders in history. His country is a wreck. He faces more domestic opposition than he's ever faced. He's shut down the media. He's thrown American journalists into jail. Has the United States, has the UK, have other liberal democracies made mistakes in the past 50, 60, 70 years? You bet. Have they also made the world a more decent place? Have they made democracy more widespread? Have they made more countries prosperous? Yes. No, so well, you see, that's balance, the point. The United the States has made the, better, uh, the world a better place, which is why when you go talk to people around the world, where do they want to go study? Are they lining up to study in Russia and China, or are they lining up to study in the United States? Surely because they live in countries that have been destabilized by U.S. foreign uh, policy. Why did you think that most uh, the envoys representing most of humanity refused at the U.N. General Assembly to condemn Russia's move into Donbass. Why did they do that? They refused and refused to uh, implement sanctions because de facto they're supporting Russia and of course, latterly, China. Uh, we're not far off from when uh, Xi Jinping chose to visit Moscow. There was a grassroots revolution in Ukraine called the Maidan Revolution in which people took to the streets and protested the fact that the Ukrainian president wanted to keep Ukraine under Russia's thumb. And that president, Yanukovych, fled the country. He ran to Russia. And then eventually a democratically elected government was put in place and the Russians said no. And they sent little green men into Crimea and they fostered a separatist uprising in Donbass. This is not, as Putin likes to call it, a Nazi regime. Okay, it but wait, wait, wait. So you think most of Crimea, most of Crimea does not support Moscow, and most of Luhansk and Donetsk doesn't, and you think the Maidan coup, even though we have the Victoria Newland phone call, where she's organizing the coup, which you call grassroots. It wasn't a coup. It was a a grassroots colored revolution in which the people of Ukraine rose up and got rid of a pro-Russian regime. And Zelensky and was supposed Russians to be the peace candidate. Said, no, we're not going to let Ukraine leave the fold. And so they went in in 2014, and then they went in again in 2022. And now they're living through what is perhaps one of the most grievous decisions that a Russian leader has ever made. Well, I'll get to that more on that in a second. But uh, given that 200,000 maybe were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the U.S. atomic bombs, The Economist, that well-known Kremlin uh, uh, talking point magazine, said that there were 149,000 excess deaths across 28 European countries because of instability in energy prices. Uh, you know about the Seymour Hersh uh, story that Biden destroyed the Nord Stream pipeline, supplying energy to Germany. Uh, do you believe that's the case? And uh, how many hundreds of thousands of people in the European Union have been killed by this war, let alone the numbers of Ukrainians and Russians, and let alone those killed because grain cannot be exported, because Zelensky is mining uh, the uh, Ukraine south?
you know, we still don't know who blew up the, the Nord Stream pipeline. I have seen no evidence to give credibility to Seymour Hersh's story. So I think we need to wait until further investigations produce some kind of hard evidence about what happened. Are there negative, very awful blowback effects of this war? You bet. Whether it's grain shortages, food shortages, inflation, lack of heating in some places. But you got to ask <clears throat> who attacked whom. This is a war, an unprovoked, illegal, immoral war of aggression by Russia against its neighbor, Ukraine, in which Russia has been committing war crimes, indiscriminately bombing Ukrainian cities. Yes, this is a war that has enormous, enormous global costs, but it is Russia that is the aggressor. Normally, when I raise the idea of the Seymour Hersh article, the idea that uh, Newland, Sullivan, Blinken, uh, would participate in uh, what was the largest methane emission uh, event in human history, perhaps, uh, they just immediately say they, there's no way that would possibly happen. You said we don't know yet. Um, so you, you do think that maybe Seymour Hersh's sources could be correct? No, I, I, I don't. Uh, that, I, I see no circumstances under which the United States would deem it in its interests to carry out an attack against a pipeline that was not functioning that would release gas into the ocean and have it come bubbling up, as you said, a major emissions uh, crisis of, of, of methane. Biden was so, rhetorical no, I, when he I, said I, I he don't... would end the Nord Stream pipeline, because we have the video footage, obviously, of him saying uh, it, won't, it won't happen. Well, he did end it. He convinced the Germans to turn off the spigot as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Professor Charles Kupchen, I'll stop you there. More from the Senior Fellow and Director of European Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still with the Senior Fellow and Director of European Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, Clinton and Obama Advisor, Professor Charles Kupcher. You know Germany are buying the energy. Who's funding the Russian war machine? It's the European Union, isn't it, buying from the dark market the energy? No, it's mostly the Russians are selling to the Chinese, to Turkey, to India. None of that's appearing in Europe, all this energy. There is some limited amount of energy that is still coming. Uh, I believe some gas is still throwing, uh, flowing through the Ukraine pipeline, strangely enough. Uh, but, you know, I do think we have to confront the reality that the sanctions have not really strangled the Russian economy. They haven't worked. And you that's just said Russia was in trouble earlier, which, of course, Russia would deny. And actually, uh, you know, obviously, even uh, Western economic uh, institutions are surprised that while Britain may be going into recession, Russia is going the other way. And, as, and you're right, uh, Russia pays Zelensky uh, transit fees for, of course, for the pipeline going through uh, Ukraine. But back to, to nuclear weapons. I mean, you want negotiations, but you want to uh, fund uh, the military in Ukraine to, I don't know, to the last Ukrainian, as they say. Uh, are we expecting Donald Trump to end this war? You said it's going to take a bit longer. We know Donald Trump wants immediate negotiations, as he said in his town hall. Uh, isn't that 
the way forward. And of course, the journalist, so-called, said to him, what do you mean? Don't you want Ukraine to win? And he went, no, I want to stop the dying. And I know you've expressed that again and again, that you want to stop the dying, just like Trump does. I think this is a, a war that is likely to end short of a full Ukrainian victory. And as a consequence, I think we need to begin to think about plan B. I think it's too early to roll that out because it would suggest it to the Russians that they can simply wait out the They're United waiting States. it out already, aren't they? They could use the Russian Air Force and destroy Kiev and use tactical nukes. They're obviously waiting it out. It's obviously slow burn from Russia. Yeah, but we need to increase the costs to Russia so that they ultimately make a decision that they don't want to wait out the West. So you think so by think killing more Russian uh, sons and daughters, that's going to help the situation and not force the opposition in Russia to force Putin to engage with those tactical nuclear weapons? Well, you want to increase the costs to the Russians so that ultimately Putin deems it in his political interests to bring the war to an end rather than to keep fighting losing more and more soldiers bring it to an end how more, more people on the other side bring it to an end how and using tactics i think we we have to assume that putin will continue to pose a threat for you to ukraine for the foreseeable future which is why even if there is a ceasefire even if there is a diplomatic effort we will continue to support need to send arms and economic support to deter russia from trying this again you know that a different narrative exists, which is that uh, the United States wanted uh, this war. They were preparing anyway uh, to uh, go harder on uh, Donetsk uh, and the Donbass more generally. This is part of a big plan, and it's backfired by, from the Biden administration spectacularly because it's united the entire global south. They're now talking about de-dollarization. I mentioned the St. Petersburg Forum, which will be uh, soon, where they talk about gold-backed currencies, dropping U.S. treasuries. And uh, we know that China, I mean, at the Council on Foreign Relations, I presume the Kissinger Triangle doc, uh, doctrine of uh, being close to Washington, being closer to Beijing or Moscow uh, than they are closer to each other, that's dead in the water now. The United States and Western Europe are alone, suffering economically, while the rest of the world moves forward. Uh, I'm not quite sure what planet you're living on because what you just described bears no resemblance to reality. The United States did not want this war. It went out and disclosed information that the Russians were planning this attack months in advance. It sent U.S. diplomats to Russia to try to avoid this war. It consulted with its allies to try to avoid this war. Putin knew full well that NATO enlargement if ever, was a long time off. He nonetheless invaded Ukraine because he believes that Ukraine doesn't deserve to exist as an independent state, and he wanted to pull it back into Russia's sphere of influence. Is the global South, major economies like India, Brazil, Indonesia, are they keeping their powder dry and not taking sides in this conflict? Yes. But this is, in many respects, a sign of the resilience of declines, the West. As it declines. And, uh, and uh, they're not even neutral, uh, some would uh, argue, even on, on, on the right. Uh, you say which planet. Uh, 
the fact is they uh, preemptively said that they can envisage Ukraine being part of NATO, which was a red line for Russia. You knew it. They knew it. Everyone knew it. If Cuba suddenly created or if Maduro in Venezuela created a new uh, environment in which um, uh, Mexico or, I don't know, southern states was uh, to uh, be part of a new military alignment, I mean, what, what do you think would happen? You knew it was a red line. The Americans knew that this was going to create uh, conflict, and the arms company share prices certainly tell us a tale of uh, knowing the war was coming. NATO declared in 2008 an open-door policy that Georgia and Ukraine would one day become a member of NATO. I happen to have opposed that policy, but it was a rhetorical policy. And the Russians knew that Ukraine was not on a track or a path to membership in NATO. And as a consequence, you have to conclude that Putin used this as an excuse to attack the country. So I do think that you have to look inside Putin's twisted mind to understand why he has launched a war that has completely blown up in his face. Well, you see, when Russia you say twisted mind, when you say twisted mind, the rest of the the rest of the global will take generations to recover. But the rest of the global south say it's a new era, the post-U.S. hegemonic era. That's what they're talking about at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They're not talking about anything. It's a different world. You're right. It's a different planet to the one you're. Uh, talking to me from. Uh, we've had the John Durham report, the um, uh, special counsel. Do you think culturally the United States was prepared through years of propaganda about Trump being a Russian agent and fake news about all of that, was prepared to demonize Russia as part of this, uh, uh, well, the Global South might call it the uh, era of US decline. Uh, they were preparing the ground for that, just as the Chinese balloon uh, prepared the American public for the uh, fact that clearly the world is moving on, and uh, you've talked about it, uh, the, the multipolar world is upon us. Well, you know, I, I think that the, the world that you just described is the world that we are moving toward, right? If we look at 2060, for example, Right, which is a long way off, we're talking about 40 years hence, then yes, we will see a dramatically new geopolitical ranking. Right, China is probably going to be number one, India will probably be number two, the US three, Brazil, Nigeria, other countries in the global south are expected to rise into the top rank. But right now, the United States is still by far the largest economy, still by far has the largest military. And if you add up the countries that are meeting at the G7 this weekend as we speak, you will see a dominant uh, capability. They still represent the lion's share of global wealth. Isn't the so fact that no one that really yes. cares anymore. Did it surprise you when uh, reportedly Mohammed bin Salman and uh, MBZ here in the UAE refused to take Biden's phone calls about oil production changes, that no one cares about the United States saying Syria should not join the Arab League. No one cares about the reservations of uh, NATO leaders, uh, European Union, British and American leaders, about the fact that Syria is admitted back in, into uh, world politics of the Iran deal with Saudi Arabia. All of this is happening while they're all muddling along with a war in Europe that the rest of the world looks upon as it was catalyzed by Vladimir Putin, uh, in a sense, the leader of the vanguard of this new world order. 
Well, I think what you are seeing is the beginnings of a world in which there is more agency in the global south. In oh, which wait, a sorry to like interrupt, Saudi but you did say that already, but you said 2060. Is it not moving quicker than, uh, than you thought? Just as I remember the articles in the Foreign Policy magazine in, uh, 20 years ago saying China eventually will be powerful. Do you not, are you not revising your opinions and thinking things no, are I moving faster? I think things are actually moving more slowly than I would have predicted, in part because the dollar remains such a dominant currency, in part because we are seeing that you can unplug countries from the global economy, at least from the Western economies, in a way that has consequences. Yes, the Saudis are playing both sides of the coin and one day tilting to China, the next day tilting toward the United States. The Indians have joined the Quad, a grouping against China, but also they've joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a, a grouping led by Russia and China. So yes, things are getting more complicated. But that, I think, suggests how important it is to prevent these kinds of wars and to turn back efforts by countries to engage in imperial conquest. We need to get the Ukraine war behind us, preferably by rebuffing, rejecting Russia's effort to grab the territory of its neighbors and start dealing with this big challenge of how to get global governance, <clears throat> how to get great power cooperation <clears throat> in a world that is multipolar or will be multipolar and very much interdependent and globalized. Just finally and briefly, what about trouble at home? I know you're in uh, Sicily, which arguably was a uh, part of this Marshall Plan proxy post-45. They're all unified uh, for Zelensky there. But back at home, uh, what about uh, US public opinion? Is it starting to move against uh, the Biden administration's policy of pouring tens of billions of dollars of public money while People uh, die of poverty on the streets with 37 million in uh, the United States in poverty uh, being handed over this money to the most corrupt country in Europe, which is, of course, Ukraine, according to Transparency International. I think most uh, Americans have really come together to support the U.S. effort to help Ukraine defend itself. I've been amazed how many Ukrainian flags there still are flying in the streets. And just a few days ago, Zelensky traveled around Europe from Italy. I was talking about Germany, the US. To France, and he garnered massive support, the largest uh, uh, German decision to provide weapons. So I think so far, pretty impressive unity. Are we beginning to see public opinion in the United States soften? Yes. Do I think that the United States and its European allies will continue supporting Ukraine at current levels forever? No, they will not. And that's precisely why it is important to begin to develop a diplomatic plan at the end of this coming offensive to try to wrestle the conflict to the ground, to get a ceasefire, and then to support Ukraine's effort to restore territorial integrity at the negotiating table. Professor Charles Kupchan, thank you. My pleasure.
And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday with the breakthrough news host and anti-war activist Eugene Perrier. More than one month since fighting broke out in Sudan, that geopolitical linchpin of world trade successfully destabilized by NATO nations. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday.